0: And we are going live, Chuck Marone.
1: (laughs) Hey, Chuck, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing fantastic. It's nice to see you.
0: Thank you so much for doing this. And, uh, you know, I I, I sent you a message earlier today
1: that I wasn't feeling very well. I I felt bad. You know, you've uh, you've got a bit of a, a horse throat and a little bit of fatigue, and that's difficult and tough, but, you know. Uh, when you schedule something like this out, you power through it. And I appreciate that. I, I wanted you to know off the top that I uh, think of you all the time. And I know I've told you this before, but I think it bears repeating. You said to me once how great of a city that Brainerd, Minnesota was to bike in. This is a city that I live. It's a city that I'm uh, you know, actively uh, involved in. I've, I've been here my entire life, except for a couple of stints at uh, universities. You said this was a great place to bike and, and I at the time I lived way outside of town and my experience in the city was, you know, the last mile kind of thing. And this was an experience of of going across the strodes and going across the the nasty highways and and pressing the beg button and standing there and waiting while cars go next to you at, you know, sixty miles an hour, five feet away from you, is a horrible, awful experience. I since have, you know, obviously moved into town. I've lived here half a dozen years and I've experienced the city as a biker and with a lot of intention. I mean, I, I bike quite a bit now. I, I bike a lot and I bike for practical reasons. I also bike, um, for fun, you know, uh, recreation in both ways. This is a great biking city. Yes. There's the highway that runs through the middle of town. It's nasty. It's (laughs) terrible yes you know there's some places where it 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 really is difficult to bike. the bridge crossing the mississippi river has it's like a four foot wide sidewalk on the side and the vehicles are going 50 miles an hour right next to you Yeah, it is really deadly but for the most part this is a great place to bike it's got a lot of it's got it's got good quiet neighborhoods connected to uh, some decent trail systems and i think the thing that is Maybe not um, appreciated a much is just how many destinations there are in biking distance. You know, when you when you walk, you've got a one mile kind of easy walk window. For me, uh, I'm, I'm maybe a little bit healthier than the typical person, but I feel like a one, you know, if you if you walk regularly, one mile is not a difficult walk. Right. But wow, if you start biking, I mean, I can reach everything. I, yeah. I never need to get in a car, like literally never need to get in a car. And it's I live not in a, in a city of 14,000 I mean, it, it, people. It's yeah. a
0: small town, yeah.
1: yeah. a small town, it's yeah. 14,000 people. Yeah. And um, you know, you, if you told my neighbors, you're gonna be without your car for a month, yeah, most of them would say, I have no clue how I to survive. Yeah. And for me, it's like, wow, this is, yeah, I, I, I can, if I don't have to drive to the airport or drive something for my kids. Right. I can go a month without starting my car.
0: Yeah. 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 It's good stuff. And I think that that's a, an interesting story too, because it's the story of smaller cities, smaller towns. And then when we look at it, it's the story of our neighborhoods. You know, it, yeah. it's, it, it's the reality that we can have, you know, uh, you know these places that we can get to, but you brought it up. It's the thing that gets in the way are those streets, <laughs> this road that you literally have cutting right through the middle of your your city, you know, separating your neighborhood from the historic downtown and where your office used to be.
1: It's a trauma, actually, yeah. and I've started to yeah. I started to experience it as. And, and, and I, don't want to be, I don't want to be melodramatic, and I'm, I'm going to preface this by saying I am not saying this to be melodramatic. Uh, I'm an engineer from Minnesota. Uh, hyperbole is, is not always, you know, it's not really my thing. Um, there's a certain amount of violence that you experience when you have to traverse across uh, what is Highway 210 through the middle of the city of Brainerd. It is five lanes. It is fast, high-speed traffic. Um, You feel naked and exposed on the approach to it when you're crossing it and on the approach, uh, you know, the the departure away from it. No matter how you do it, it is a a very hostile, threatening kind of experience. And yeah, you know, this is not unique to my city. I mean, most cities have something similar to this, particularly cities of this size. Uh, have you know the main highway running through the middle of town it's our economic artery it is the place that has done like more destruction to a city than anything is this nasty strode and yeah it it makes it, it if if somehow that were solved it would alleviate i think 90% of the obstacles that people have to uh to getting around by foot and by bike in, in this community
0: yeah yeah well let's let's do this let's rewind just a little bit and um yeah. and Give the audience a little bit of context in, in history. Uh, we, we do, it's an, an international audience, so I know we've uh, seen some of the names of the folks that are uh, that are tuning in. So we've got uh, ne- the Netherlands are in the house. Some of the so, not-just-bikes
1: friends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh,
0: But why don't you just take a moment to just give your uh, very brief introduction as to who Chuck Marone is in Strong Towns.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm am i I'm an engineer. I'm a planner. I worked for many, many years doing municipal engineering and planning projects, both for a, a firm. I, I, I interned at the DOT during college. I went to work for a consulting firm after college. I went back to graduate school, started my own firm as part of that process and road ordinances, process permits, did uh, sewer water projects, uh, road projects all around the state of Minnesota. Um, in 2008, uh, after, after many revelations in, in this work, uh, in 2008, as the market was cratering, as uh, banks were failing, as the housing was uh, in, in implosion, uh, I sat down and started to write a blog. And I've, I've told this before. I, I think it's worth saying again. If you ever experience therapy, a lot of times people who have suffered trauma, they will ask you to journal and journal is a way of kind of reliving the the memory or sorting things out in your brain and allows you to kind of deal with it and cope with it and at at, at that point i was experiencing a lot of just cognitive dissonance in my own brain between the work that i was doing and the the clearly destructive outcomes that i was experiencing around me and so i started to write and my whole thing was i'm going to explain why our cities are going broke. I'm gonna explain why they don't work. I'm gonna explain why all the stuff that we're doing right now to save the housing market and pump up things is is actually part of the problem. And if nothing else occurs, I just wanna sort this out in my brain and writing is one of those activities that, that forces you to do that. I initially shared it with just a few friends, like this wasn't a thing I did for mass public consumption, uh, but very quickly I found the, the, the readership growing, the ideas kind of getting out there, and more and more people discussing them. Pretty soon, uh, uh, some friends of mine approached me, said, well, you need to start a nonprofit." I told them, no. <laughs> they said, well, we're going to do it anyway. You come along. And we started Strong Towns. I started getting invited to speak in different places, started getting invited to come and, and talk to different groups our organization grew and grew. We started a membership program. Overnight, we had 350 members. We're now uh, over 3,200 members. Uh, people who donate you know, small, modest amounts every month to keep this thing going. Uh, and it has been uh, this, this, this kind of rocket ship journey, intellectually, of, of developing ideas, sharing them with the world. And, and now at a point where a decade later, decade plus later, watching people going out saying, uh, I'm inspired by strong towns. Here's what I'm going to do: uh, local leaders, uh, local activists, mayors, city council members, and uh, you know, it's really, really uh, taken on a life of its own now. One that's that's really exciting because of a lot of heroes around the country that want to make their cities better.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, when I think back to those early days, <laughs> when I go go
1: back, you to were like... involved in this. You were part of the early trying to help us figure out what to do with this
0: yeah I, I definitely <laughs> before the membership structure and mm-hmm. um, it was really it was a decade ago for me um, I, I got on board in sort of the you know 2010 2011 time frame and then 2012 I think we met up at CNU I think it was at uh, in West Palm Beach that year and then yeah. of course in 2013, the year of my
1: corduroy uh, corduroy blazer.
0: There you go. Um, yes. And then in 2013, remember... <laughs> in 2013 is when I came up to visit you, which is what you were talking about earlier was me yeah. tooling around uh, Brainerd, Minnesota on my, my Brompton and going, you know, just it isn't great, but it isn't bad. And part yeah. of what makes many of these cities and towns not bad, they're not great, but they're not bad for getting around on bike and, and by walking is that, in reality except for that strode there's nobody around there's not that many cars right
1: yeah, yeah. It, that's the that's the that's the astounding thing is that we have put so much of our wealth right. into frictionless movement of motor vehicles and you know, obsessively so like, oh, there's a, there's a 30 second delay. Someone experienced on the other side of town at one point, we need $9 million. And literally like, this is what we're talking about. There's no cars. Right. Uh, And, and, and this was a, this was a cognitive dissonance thing for me too, because I grew up here. I grew up in a, a car culture. I grew up I, I, I passed my driver's test on my 16th birthday. I saved up and bought myself a car. I, I, I did an interview a, a while back and they asked me about growing up here. And I said, you know, I, I needed a car because I wanted a girlfriend. And that was, you know, those two things were synonymous at right. that point because a car meant, you know, mobility. You get around. I, I have, I'm not an anti-car person, but stepping back and looking at the way we have essentially given up so much of our wealth so much of our prosperity so much of the quality of life and experience that that is good in this neighborhood so that we can have high speed frictionless right. traffic that would be ridiculous enough if every if there was tons of traffic but when you take it the next step further and realize that like a really busy street will have one car every 3 or 4 minutes go by right it becomes like a pathology. So at some point, you step back and recognize that that the, there's there's something almost pathological in our analysis of our environment that has prompted us to do this. And I, I can't the human psychological part. I struggle to even grasp and understand. Yeah, yeah. So you've written two books now. Yeah.
0: And uh, the most recent book that you wrote was Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. Uh, talk, give us give us the, the the elevator pitch as to why you wrote this book and and what it's all about.
1: Yeah, I actually am working on the third book right now. There's five books in the series that I pitched to Wiley Publishing. And I feel like it was a little bit, and I'm not comparing myself to George Lucas, but I feel it was a little bit like George Lucas when he had like this vision for how six Star Wars movies should go. And the studio's like, yeah, okay, this is crazy. Give us one. Uh, that was Strong Towns. That was the first one. But if you go through Strong Towns, a lot of people are disappointed because you didn't talk about Stroh's. You didn't talk about uh, any of the transportation stuff. And Confessions is that. It's this hyper focus on the transportation issues as they intersect with Strong Towns. I use as a device for this book, the city of Springfield, Massachusetts, because uh, I had the, the, the good fortune, the bad fortune. I, I you know, it, it was a tragedy of being in the city at the time this, this tragedy occurred. This uh, strode through the middle of the city. I had gone out and looked at that day with some local activists some people who wanted to see it, it fixed. The city had just redid the street, State Street in Springfield. Uh, in a way that made it obviously like really, really dangerous. I mean, you could stand there and observe people almost getting hit, and 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 not. I'm not saying I like incidentally observed it. I said we stood there for ten minutes and watched multiple occurrences of this. And so uh, that night, uh, a, a mother, a daughter, and a niece, uh, two little girls with adults adult, were walking here and and were struck. Uh, the little niece was injured horribly. And the little girl was killed, and I was there. And you know, I've said many times, this type of tragedy is horrific. It's 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 difficult to contemplate and deal with, Um, but understand that this happens ten times a day. I mean, there's over three thousand kids a year that are killed on our streets. I just happened to be in one place where it happened, and. Because of the egregiousness of this design mixed with this particular tragedy, uh, I've been spent many years now pushing on trying to get this street fixed. There's a lot of people there in Springfield who were pushing on this. Uh, There ultimately became a a city council that wanted to see this changed, but the the bureaucracy of transportation from street design standards uh, to state encumbrances, to how we deal with congestion, all of this prevented positive action from happening that would prevent further loss of life. And in fact, further loss of life happened. It continued to happen year after year after year. People would get hit, people would get killed on this exact street. Yeah. Um, and so this book it is an attempt to explain to everybody in North America why their transportation system isn't working. Uh, whether your concern is delays and congestion for automobile drivers, whether your concern is being able to bike and walk, whether your concern is my city has no budget to maintain their roads and my taxes are going up and my roads are falling apart. Wherever you fall on that spectrum of concern, it it all relates to the same underlying premise of we just have a really bad uh, model for local transportation. I'm not talking about interstate highways, I'm talking about the transportation within our cities. And so this book uses Springfield as a device to explain that, hopefully in a way. Uh, I I found that when I talk about Brainerd, it resonates with everybody except people in Brainerd. (laughs) When I talk about Springfield, it resonates with everybody except people in Springfield because you get very defensive, you know all the new... I wanted to write a book that would resonate with everybody and everybody could see their own community and their own struggles in it. Yeah. Um, but then hopefully also have positive things result for a city that I, I care about, that being Springfield, Massachusetts. Yeah.
0: One of our uh, uh, viewers here uh, added a, a comment here. says just wanted to, to say Chuck's book, the latest book, has really changed the way I see cities, especially the words to road. And now, unfortunately, I see them everywhere. And, yeah. uh, and he actually lives in Finland.
1: <laughs> so, yeah i know they're I, everywhere it's a they're it's a u.s export yes and i apologize for that yeah. i i do i do uh feel regret and re- maybe regret is the wrong word because i would do it again i i do lament the fact that i walked around for many years looking at these things and they bothered me the strode condition the right. idea that we would at the simultaneously try to move cars very very quickly while we also created a place adjacent to that right Um, we would try to do two things at once and you know fail at fail at both of them this was something where i would i would drive my wife crazy because we would we would go on vacation and i'd be like i can't believe what they've done here like look at this and I would point all of these things, and, and, and in my own town, I would write about them, I'd talk about them, and I'd, I'd try to get our cities to, to change these. When I started writing about the Strode, I, it did have this effect on people where, in a sense, you're explaining to them the thing that lies in front of them in plain sight, but that they don't pay attention to. They've just learned to tolerate, or live with, or accept. And once you give it a word and a definition and explain why it's screwed up uh, they can't unsee it and it becomes very painful for people because literally you take a city like mine 95 percent of our our transportation infrastructure is one version or another of a strode, right. uh, where we're trying to do two things at once: we're trying to move vehicles quickly, and we're trying to create wealth and 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 a place. Those things are not compatible, but that is the default way we build things.
0: So yeah, I, you're dancing around the, the the definition of the strode,
1: the futon of transportation. Boom. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, <laughs> you know, I do so much public speaking. That, you know, especially in the early days when I was speaking to groups of two and three, like literally, that's what I did for, you know, the, the first three years of Strong Towns is if anybody would listen, I would show up and talk. Like, yeah. do you want to talk? Yeah, come and talk. I would show up. There'd be two people there. I'd be like, let's do this. You get to try out a lot of phrasing, right? And uh, when you're standing up in front of a group, things come out of your head that you, you weren't anticipating. And one day I was trying to explain a strode succinctly and I was working through it. And then I just said, it's, it's, it's like a futon. It's like the futon of transportation. You take a futon, which is uncomfortable couch trying to be an uncomfortable bed (laughs) and it doesn't do either well. And the strode tries to be both street and road at the same time and it fails at both. And I saw the light bulbs go off. I saw people like, okay, that, that resonates with me. Like I get it and so yeah it's the it's the futon of transportation yeah it tries to do a lot of stuff and it does nothing well
0: yeah and callum uh, rsb uh you know quote you know basically uh, commented out there that yeah he's seen some really bad crashes in his life out there and they're all on strode like roads and it makes sense
1: well transportation for america just put out their latest uh, dangerous by design report and they, that, that was the strongest statement I've ever seen correlating uh, fatalities with Strode design. And they made that case. I mean, they, they had the data and they, I can't remember what the number was, but it was a really high percentage, like 80% or something very, 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 very high of deaths are occurring on these, what engineers would call arterial roadways, yeah. um, where you combine high speed through traffic with the complexity of an urban environment. So you have cars that are turning uh, in and out of traffic, are stopping to park. You have people trying to cross on foot, on bike and wheelchair. When you combine high speeds with complexity, any mistake that you make, and we're human, humans will make mistakes. I wanna give you a a thing. Robot computers are gonna make mistakes. Any mistake that you make in an environment where you've combined high speeds with complexity, it in a sense, Magnifies that mistake. And that's where we get our fatalities. That's where people are getting killed in these environments that are actually simultaneously bankrupting our cities and making them lesser places. We're also killing people at the same time.
0: Yeah. And Simon Manelli uh, basically says, yeah, uh, in, in regards to the futon and the strode, they both cause back and neck injuries.
1: <laughs> so there you uh, go. <laughs> yeah. You, so, know, okay. the, it, it, you might get off easy with a back and uh, neck yeah, injury. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and in fact, you, you
0: talked about how the Springfield um, was a literary device the, that you used in the book. Uh, and w- we talked about this extensively the last time you were on the podcast, uh, because that yeah. was August of last year, just days before, weeks before, uh, you know, the book was released. And yeah, so folks, if you haven't seen that episode, definitely head over there and, 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 and watch that. It's, it's amazing, but I want to play this because this is hot off with the presses. This is an <laughs> update on Springfield, Massachusetts.
1: When I wrote Confessions of a Recovering Engineer, I focused on State Street in Springfield. State Street is a street that I had visited a number of times. It was clearly very, very dangerous. They had a number of fatalities along the street, particularly at a spot where the large public library emptied out onto the street with the parking lot directly across the street. Shortly after the book was published, another tragic death occurred in this exact location. But this time, calls for change, calls for reform were not met by resistance. The city, in fact, mobilized. And I want you to see what's going on right now. They brought out barrels. They brought out temporary construction measures to try out a new design, to see what would happen if they actually slowed traffic, what would happen if they narrowed lanes, what would the results be of trying to make this street safer. They are using the knowledge that they have gained, uh, the wisdom that they have acquired through this experiment to redesign State Street to be safe for everyone. This is an approach that anybody can use and we have to call this what it is, this is leadership. This is what leadership looks like. And say congratulations to the city of Springfield for taking this step, for being leaders in building safe streets, your city can copy this approach, too. We, we know how to do this in temporary construction sites. We can do this in places where we need to rapidly innovate and figure out, you know, how do we fix a situation that has turned dangerous in ways that we know we need to address. This is how we build safe and productive streets. This is how we build a nation of strong towns.
0: Love it. Coolio, man.
1: So let me say this
0: i was gonna go go for it i I was gonna say as somebody who obviously read the book you are not kind to them (laughs) you called them out (laughs) so i watched this and i'm like whoa where is this chuck coming from uh so anyways that was just my immediate gut uh, reaction
1: i i i feel i mean i'm 49 years old now i feel like as a as a as a fully matured adult in the uh, you know the prime years of my life, if I can't forgive and move beyond what I think is, you know, yeah, in the book they're gross incompetence, they're killing people, they're indifferent to their death and suffering. You know, it, it would be easy for me to get on a video and say these people have blood on their hands, and and this is like the least that they could have done. They should have done it six, seven, eight years ago. But you know, we 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 need we need to be able to move on. And we need, we need, we need people to, uh, cause I, when I look at this situation, the thing that prevented change for so long, the thing that made them resist taking these obvious steps, uh, was defensiveness. It was a very human emotion. Uh, we studied this street. We came up with this design. We built this design and now that design is killing people can't be our fault. We, we, we did our due diligence. We did everything we want. And and any like ag- acknowledgement that the design was bad was an acknowledgement that you had failed, that you had screwed up. And I just recognize that for us to get the outcomes that we want, what we have to do is we have to make this a heroic act. It does take a certain level of human courage to say, we screwed up and made a mistake. And I think that if the reaction they would get from someone like me would be to punish them for that, uh, to go and say, of course you did. I've been saying it for eight years. How many people have died in the interim? What's the next place gonna do? I want everybody to step up and make these changes. And so I'm gonna gonna celebrate Springfield when they act like leaders and they do leadership things. And it's my best hope for them uh, that this is just the first step of them acting like leaders in this situation. And really, John, let's go look back at Chuck Marone in 1998, let's go back and look at Chuck Marone in 2002. Let's look at me in 2006. I'm not proud of the projects I did back then. If, if, If I had to not change my mind and not mature my approach and not take in new information and adapt my thing without being held in contempt for 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 uh, having a wrong worldview, how do we make any progress, right? So yeah. that, that's the whole reason
0: why the, the the book is named Confessions.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it is true. That that's very true. And there is an aspect of confessions. I, I was very hard on engineers. I'm very hard on the profession. I'm very hard on Springfield. But I also hope that it comes through that I was hard on myself a little bit, you know, too. In in that I I do not stand apart from them. I stand with them, but I'm, I'm walking in a different way and I want them to walk with me in that way, not uh, resist coming along this, this path we need to travel. And it's a very, very
0: important path that we need to travel. I mean, this is, we're talking about reforming a profession, you know, the yeah. planning and engineering professions, you know, they, they are separate, but you know, the when it comes down to engineering and, you know, the confessions of an engineer, et cetera. I mean, that's one of the topics. That's one of the themes that is in the book, but you also are living this theme too, of, of the need to reform this profession. And, and and you said it earlier and you said it in Oklahoma city at, uh, at CNU. I mean, these streets are, Killing people and it is gross negligence. I had this discussion yes. with uh with Mike Sewell uh, two days ago on, on the podcast, folks. If you haven't seen that episode, you gotta get over there and look at it. He's he's an engineer from Louisville, Kentucky that totally gets it, and his epiphany you know had to do with you know realizing that what he was doing as an engineer was like again perpetuating this this and so he's now taking steps and and one of the things that he said in our conversation was when I asked him about, well, how do we reform this? And he says, it ain't easy. And it's not going to be easy. You're going through a little bit of, of this and you're getting some bumps and bruises uh, for <laughs> this. So for those uh, folks who do follow your podcast, you gave us a, an update on the whole licensure uh, drama that has unfolded. What's the update?
1: Well, uh, the update is that I'm, I'm done with the licensing board now. So since you and I last spoke, my license has reached its, its, its end and I could extend it, but I opted not to. I opted to enter what in the engineering uh, profession here in Minnesota, they would call retirement status. So I'm technically a retired engineer. And for those people who don't know uh, what's going on, I have received multiple complaints filed against me to the licensing board at the state. Uh, The licensing board of the state is tasked with overseeing licensed engineers and the work that they do. The complaints that they receive are typically along the lines of someone committed a fraud. They lied in a contract. They were incompetent. They're practicing engineering. They're out signing plans or or soliciting work and they don't have a license. It's this kind of thing. But my complaints against me were, you know, he wrote something I didn't like or he presented ideas I I didn't uh, agree with. The latest complaint that was filed against me, however, had a, a small technical hook to it. Uh, as an engineer, I'm supposed to renew my license every couple of years. I haven't signed any plans since two, since the spring of 2000. Uh, I haven't done any work that required an engineering license since 2012 uh, in in any way. And you know, uh, your license is on a couple year window. When my license came up for renewal, I didn't even think to renew it. I didn't get a notice in the mail you're supposed to kind of voluntarily go out and do this i forgot i continued to have professional engineer on my bio which in a technical sense is a violation of state law if you are claiming to be a professional engineer and you don't have a current license uh you're in violation of state law now that state law is written under the, you know, building code, uh, uh, you know, the the administration section. And it's meant to apply to people who are out representing themselves in the practice of engineering as, you know, like, I can build that bridge, I can build that road, I can sign that plans, let me give you a, you know, guidance on, on how to do this specific engineering thing. It's not meant to apply to people who are writing a blog and giving speeches and and doing that, but nonetheless, someone made a complaint against me uh, saying that I was out giving speeches and I was out talking and I didn't have a license. Um, The time that complaint got to me, I had renewed my license. I'd figured this out. I had seen that it had lapsed. I had done all the continuing ed and all the stuff you need to keep your license current. So I just filled out the paperwork and sent it in. So in a sense, it was like a technical, uh, I had a period of time where I wasn't licensed where my bio said I was. The licensing board came back to me and I think they had first thought they had caught me, right? Because they you know, they were very aware of me, that became clear very quickly, they knew who I was. But they assumed that I had been out signing plans or doing consulting work, or whatever. When they found out I didn't, they started become really, really obsessed uh, with the talks that I had gave. I'll skip all the stuff because we've had a year of federal court litigation, state court litigation, everything kind of went back to the licensing board has the authority to act independently, and I don't get to fight their authority at all until they render a final decision on this. Uh, They rendered that final decision uh, this week. The final decision for me, they found me uh, guilty on eight counts of claiming to be a professional engineer in the practice of engineering uh, when I was not currently licensed. For that, they have censured me, uh, which is you know like the, the highest form of, of uh, disgust they can express. They have reprimanded me, they fined me $1,500, they made findings that I acted willfully uh, with dishonesty, I misled the public, I misled the board, John, th- this is so like bizarre over the top. You can go through all the orders that they've issued on yeah. their site are on their site. You can go through and you can see people who have done like truly heinous things, yeah. right? Like built things where stuff fell down, built things they weren't qualified for, claimed claimed uh, titles they weren't uh, allowed to have in the practice of actually doing engineering, not out writing a blog or giving lectures or what have you. And those people have not been censured. Right, uh, the, the the board has not expressed official disgust with them. This is a very personal thing, and what you see, and I, I I'm free to say this now because I never have to go back to this board for anything. I, I've been trying to work this out with them, and I, I I acknowledge that I had used PE in my bio during a lapse of my licensure. I was willing to pay a fine. I was willing to say I wasn't willing to uh, say that I lied or was dishonest because I haven't been, but this group, which is a cartel of the engineering profession, sanctioned by the state to, to, to do this kind of work, has used the authority and power of the state to enforce a trademark infringement on me for the use of the word professional engineer, not related to engineering, not related to the practice of engineering, not related to anything I've done, but just as a way to defame me, defame the strong downs movement and to silence other engineers who would stand up and say similar things. Other engineers who would stand up and say similar things are now on notice that they are targets. And if you have a a lapse in licensure or you say something that is they're going to drag you in. And force you to go through hearings. They're gonna, they're gonna try to tar and feather you. Uh, they're gonna put your life through hell. So it's best to just keep your mouth shut. Strong Downs, we're not gonna, we're not gonna take this. We are filing an appeal in the state court of appeals. There's a process you have to follow. We have to go to the state court of appeals. We just to go to the state supreme court if 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 their ruling is upheld. Ultimately, we will end up in federal court and the federal courts have a, a, a long history of being hostile towards government cartels that express I, I, exhibit this kind of uh rogue uh kind of you know uh, smackdown of of people's free speech uh using their power to in a sense intimidate people yeah so it's sad I'm, when I started this process, you know, you you go back to 2015 when the very first complaint was lodged against me for something I wrote. My assumption was that the licensing board would be a dignified place. John, I I live in the state of Minnesota. We like to think that we're all above average and not above average (laughs) in terms of like, you know, whatever, but like our, our, our discourse our way of doing things, our way of interacting with each other. We're not going to be petty. We're not going to be small. We're not going to do, you know, if you said New Jersey and like Chris Christie and whatever, you know, was like using the power of the state to sanction some guy they didn't like. Okay. Like those are the things that go on out there. It's a full contact sport here in Minnesota. We don't do those things. Yeah. Yeah. We do those things. Yeah. (laughs) We do. In the engineering field. You do. (laughs) I I think that has been the most disappointing thing to me is that, I have a lot of, I am I think if you were going to criticize me in terms of this interaction that I've had is that I was naive and believed in the best intent of the people involved in this. And it is very clear now that this cartel, the state licensing board, is using their power and authority to attack me and to threaten and intimidate other engineers. And it's disgusting. It, it makes me it makes me really sad really really sad yeah and to be clear
0: i mean every state has something similar to this in terms of the licensing board and it's out there and 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 chuck how dare you i mean seriously how dare you threaten the status quo of the all omnipotent power of the engineers but it, 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 that's ex- it, essentially is it what what you were doing in that book is you were calling out you know the fact that this is insane—that people continue yeah. to be killed on these roads—and they
1: they will not hear being criticized. No, they the won't. Standpoint. And I I go when when I give a public lecture on the confessions uh, material, or, or or even you go through the book, I, I I try to explain how we got here, and I try to explain how we got here in a way that gives people in the profession today and out, right? And, and part of this is giving myself an out, right? The, this is the approach that I was I was given. Th- this is what I was taught in school. This is what I was taught as an engineer in training. This is what my, my mentors and my elders and, and the people in this profession that I learned from taught me how to do. And they learned it from people and they learned it from people. But you go back and see like, how did this all start? We were trying to build an interstate system across a continent. Uh, We were trying to pump out uh, lots and lots of money to keep our economy from going back into depression after the end of World War II. And we took all of this kind of stuff around building highways, and we said, if it works great there, it'll work even better in the middle of our cities. It was a wrong idea. It was a wrong approach. And I try to give people an out. I try to give people like, I I get it. You've walked into this profession, and this is what you've been handed. But step back with me and walk down a different path and, and, and have a different recognition. In the absence of that, and I, I think even with that, it's clear what needs to happen. And I'm gonna say this in a, in, a, in a very direct way uh, to local leaders, to mayors, city council members, activists in a community, our local streets should not be designed by engineers. Uh, sure. Let's design the have an engineer design the bridge. Let's have an engineer design the highway, the interstate between here and there. Uh, if we're going to have an open road between our community and that community, let's, let's give that to the engineer. They know what they're doing, stay out of their way. They can do it. They're really competent to do it. But when we come into our cities, engineers should not design streets. Engineers should be part of a street design process, right? Because engineers have important things to say about streets. What kind of pavement should we use? How is the drainage going to work? Where do we put the utilities in the ground? But the idea that engineers have anything insightful to say on the goals, objectives, priorities of the street is just absurd. The engineer values are very simple to understand as they're applied to the design process. When engineers design a street, they start with the design speed, they then look at the volume of traffic, they then look at uh, how do we build this according to our manual to be safe, uh, given the first two parameters, and then they look at the cost. This is back, this works for a highway. If you want to build an interstate between Austin and Dallas, Uh, go for it. Like That makes a lot of sense. If you're building the street out in front of your house or the street out in front of your business, these values are the absolute backwards set of values. And if you go and talk to people and say, how should we design the street? What are the values we should bring to bear? What are the things that we should focus on? Speed and volume, the two mobility metrics that engineers obsess about become the lowest priority in a matrix of other priorities. The other priorities being things like, how do we make this safe for everybody? How do we get people to want to invest here? How do we get people to want to live here? How do we get people to want to open businesses here? These are all like way higher categories of urgency than speed and and, and volume of traffic. And so I want public officials, I want local people to recognize that there is nothing in state law, there is nothing in uh, you know, the, the Ashto Green Book or the Manual and Uniform Traffic Control Devices. Th- there's nothing in your design bid process. There's nothing that mandates that your local streets be the exclusive design of engineers who may, if they're very generous, allow other people to comment, but don't have to take those comments into account because their values and priorities dominate. There's nothing that requires that system. The system we need to have is we need to put non-technical people in charge of street design, allow the engineer to be part of the process doing the technical part. But the rest of it, which is mostly non-technical, needs to be done with people who have a very different approach, a very different mindset, and a very different grounding. It's nothing preventing your city from doing that.
0: Yeah when we look at what happened in springfield there because a big part of the strong towns is is talking about the bottom up revolution and, and you know getting people engaged within their communities is that part of what happened is that part of the epiphany that happened for the the, the local leadership is that did they start hearing from the community to in demanding that they do something
1: i i, I want to say yes I, it's a, it's a little bit weird. Now I'm from Minnesota. Minnesota, uh, culturally is very different than Massachusetts. It's also very different than the West coast. And I'm going to, I'm going to contrast those two, because I think this is important. If, if you look at the West coast, West coast has a, uh, a, a, you know, California, Washington, Oregon has a really, really strong ethic of bottom-up community dialogue, bottom-up community dialogue that ends in nothing, <laughs> right? They they're really really good at doing a lot of talking um, and having that talking like not really result in any uh, any action. Um, you know, these are states with referendum and recall and all that, um, kind of like direct democracy. And and you see in this system that uh, there's a lot of people who do a lot of meeting, but nothing really comes of it. When I go into the East Coast. Uh, and and you know Massachusetts is a is in you know is, is kind of typical of this. Um, what you see is that there's a lot of people in a community that want to see change happen, and they may and in Springfield they did organize and push for that. Um, but the decisions are very insulated, very separated, and the the consultation in those cases are there's almost like a wall. Uh, so. Uh, We're not even pretending to do public engagement. We're not even pretending to come out. We're just going to come out and tell you like what we're going to do. And, you know, we'll sit here and you can complain and you can do it because we got to go through this process. But that's what we're going to do. California seems very bottom up chaotic, like West Coast seems very bottom up chaotic without uh, a connection to actual policy results. The East Coast is very top down hierarchical with almost a patronizing vision or version of public interaction. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying Minnesota has figured this out, um, but it does feel like Minnesota or the Midwest in specific is kind of a moderation of these two. I don't think it's perfect here, but I think it. it, it both of those extremes have been jarring to me as I've gotten to know these places. So your question was, was, it, was there people out, act, you know, pushing for change and that's what happened. In Springfield, I I think the answer is yes, but it happened in a weird way, right? Because it it took a long, long time because the bureaucracy there is very insulated from public feedback. They don't expose themselves much to the public. They don't expose themselves much to feedback. They don't have to really answer questions from the public. They're kind of insular by the way they've formed and created their bureaucracies and they empower them. But what happened is that people, activists in the community, people who wanted to see this specific street dealt with, work to get other people elected and uh, they've had a complete turnover in their city council to the point where, when the latest crash happened, the one that happened last November, after three months after the book is out, another person is killed in the exact same spot, horrible tragedy. Uh, The city council said, we are going to demand answers. Right. And the mayor can be insulated from that. The city planning, public works director can be insulated from that, but we're here and we are going to hold hearings and demand answers and do this very publicly. And I think that was the, I think that was the thing that broke the log jam, right? Yeah.
0: Well, and um, I think, and you've said this before, is that Engineers are good at solving problems that, yeah. you know, it, but you have to give them the right problem to solve. Um, but what was happening with this particular, you know, case, I mean, that engineer was like incredibly condescending to, you know, the public and to even the elected officials that were saying, we need answers. And, and, it was just a very, very unfortunate situation. It's it's actually kind of related to a question that has just popped up here um, on the feed. And it's, uh, you know, any battle-tested tricks from Chuck on how to make thick-headed planners and engineers see and understand the mayhem they're creating? I'm struggling with that.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I don't waste my time on that, right? You know, it was... Charles Darwin, at the end of Origin of Species, laments that a lot of progress is made one funeral at a time, and he talks about his you know ideas in uh, regarding evolution, and he said these are being wholly rejected by people. Uh, there's a whole group of people who you know are not even they, they're so uh, entrenched in the body of knowledge that they themselves have digested over the course of their lifetime. That they cannot open their minds and their hearts to new ideas. I, I feel like what Darwin was saying was a comment, not about, you know, in his case, biologists or, or people in science. It was also not applicable to engineers and, and, and planners specifically. I think that is a, a human thing, right? And so I, I think we need to recognize that engineers and planners are humans, they're gonna have human reactions and emotions to things. And a lot of them are going to be intransigent and not uh, be willing to adopt or, or change their approach. In those situations, there's really only two things to be done. And I don't think there's a, like, it's a magic elixir we can give them. I don't, I often get asked, will you come and I've got this horrible engineer, will you come and like whisper the, the magic incantation that will make them a good engineer? And I'm like, there, there, there is no such thing. I think Darwin was right. I think there'll be a lot of funerals and that's how progress will be made. And and I don't mean these people will necessarily have to die, but I think that there will be a lot of retirements and the people who come in will have a different point of view. Now, if we want to accelerate that, I think there's a lot of legitimate ways to do that. And that's where I think you know local governments in particular have the capacity to direct things in different ways than they have now. Don't fight with that engineer. Don't fight with that planner. Just take them out of the decision-making process. Make them a subordinate part of the team. Rearrange your structure so that they're not the ones carrying this project forward. They're the ones that comments on the work of others and provides their kind of narrow technical expertise. To me, that's the way that we get around this, this problem, short of people retiring and moving on. And I'm just going to say I've said this before in many ways, and I, you know, I look at the cartel of engineers in my state. A lot of them need to lose their job, and I don't think you know. I I think if an engineer is going to sit there and say this is what's safe, despite evidence to the contrary of people getting killed, you know that that person should lose their job. That person should be reassigned. Uh, There's there's creative ways to do this in government. Governments restructure all the time. Generally, when you see a government restructuring, they're restructuring to deal with an internal conflict point that they can't deal with because of union rules or whatever. Uh, They're restructuring to change things around. I think we need to get very creative about doing those kind of things. And quite frankly, I have watched over the last 20 years engineers embrace Complete Streets. I remember 20 years ago when engineers thought Complete Streets was horrible. There was two ways that we talked to engineers into embracing Complete Streets. One was we gave a ton of money to Complete Streets. And guess what? Engineers like to do projects. And if you make it easier to fund the project, uh, you can do it. The second thing is when we interviewed people and for new jobs or we interviewed consultants for projects, the politicians started saying, tell us about Complete Streets. What do you know about it? And all of a sudden, they all had to pretend at the very least that they could competently <laughs> do it. Yeah. Yeah. Start asking about strong towns, start asking about yeah. safe and productive streets, start asking about walkability, start asking about the interaction. What, what, what is a strode and what's the interaction and how do we deal with the safety issue? Start asking those questions. And what will happen is like internally, the incentives of the profession will change from how do we get capital from the state and federal governments to build the next strode to how do we respond to these urgent local issues?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I pulled up your your website here, uh, which, by the way, awesome uh, redo of the website. We've got the new logo out. And I would say that um, in, 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 in kind of like extending the answer to the question is understand what you can do to grow that movement. It really is a matter of, you know, increasing the number of people who within your community are, are aware of what's going on. And I love this website, this redone website. Um, You've got, you just went through uh, your strategic planning uh, process and we've got five new campaign areas. So in the about us area, there's a little bit of, you know, the, the kind of the key areas that you guys have. you got your media, you got your education, you've got your resources. But further down here, we get to our five campaigns that came out of the strategic
1: planning process. Walk us through these five campaigns. We realized that, uh, you know, our, 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 our last strategic plan was about building a movement. How do we get these ideas in places and get people talking about them? And we realize now that, Uh, we have built a movement. We need to continue to grow it, but we actually need to help the people in that movement focus on specific ways to make change. And we spent a lot of time internally debating over what that was going to look like. We wanted to make sure the things that we were going to work on were things that had coattails to them. So if we can get people to do X, that will also bring with it an easier path to doing A, B, C, and D behind it. So the campaigns are are, our focus point. These are the things that we're focusing on over the next five years, ending highway expansion. We recognize that interstate highways did something beautiful. They connected places over distance, but we built that. We were done building that at the end of the 1960s, really. And everything that's gone on since then has just been inertia. And all of that inertia has been deeply damaging to cities. The idea that we should put money into continued expansion of highways, continually building Strodes is just wrong and it's robbing our cities of wealth and capacity. That money needs to be redirected into fixing Strodes, into building more productive places. And so we just said, like, we do not identify a single highway expansion project that is worthy today of support. And so as a blanket statement, we oppose all of them, and we need to end every highway expansion project until we've actually gone back and have a sense of how we're gonna fix stuff. The, the second campaign that I think is, you know, transparent local accounting. This is just the core insight of Strong Towns that nothing we do at the local level to account for our city budgets actually informs people of what's going on. There's been a lot made about pensions, and I think pensions are, are a big deal, uh, but the pension liabilities dwarf, uh, they're, I'm sorry, they're, they're dwarfed. They, they, they are tiny in comparison to our, the infrastructure liabilities. Cities have built tax bases inadequate to maintain the infrastructure they put in place to, to get that tax base. It is, in many ways, a financial Ponzi scheme. And the accounting rules and and practices that are in place today um, masquerade this. They are designed for Wall Street bond investors. They're not as designed for mayors and city councils to make decisions. They're certainly not designed for the general public to understand what is going on. And we want to pull back the veil from that and allow people to actually understand uh, the financial ramifications of decisions their cities make. Um, incremental housing is this core strongtown's insight that every neighborhood needs to be able to evolve and change. When we lock neighborhoods uh, in amber, uh, we create something very very destructive for a community. And so, while no neighborhood should experience radical radical change, no neighborhood should be completely reimagined and and you know the people kicked out and and people not you know uh, being able to relate to the place that they have chosen. Neither can that neighborhood remain locked under glass. Uh, Neighborhoods have to be able to flex and change. And so we're advocating for policies that allow that to happen. Safe and productive streets is what we've been talking about. Um, We need to shift our uh, emphasis on local streets from the throughput of traffic. So focusing on automobiles and how quickly we move automobiles, that needs to become a deeply subordinate emphasis or goal for local streets. And the primary goal of local streets needs to be that they be safe and productive. We make that shift, we transform every community in the country. And then the last one has to do with parking uh, mandates and subsidies. We recognize that the, the largest waste, the largest squandering of public resources and private resources from a land use standpoint in this country comes from parking. The overbuilding of parking, the over mandating of parking, the continued public subsidy of parking, And that if these things went away, a true market price for parking could emerge, uh, one that would make parking uh, a lot more in balance with the actual demand for it. Uh, I live in this small town, and I tell you, the most obsessive thing that people bring up is, where do we park, where do we park, where do we park? And John, I'm telling you, it's insane. I have never gone downtown and not be able to park within 30 feet of where I'm trying to go. Um, But if you ask people, they'll say, we have a massive parking problem. Um, Parking is always contextual. And so uh, given unlimited resources, uh, our tendency is to tear everything down and make everything uh, a parking lot. And we need to arrest that tendency because it's, it's literally destroying our communities.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a question from Charlie just came through and said, "How do we get the general public involved in road designs?" You have an entire playbook in terms of how to engage community members, and and I think there was even a chapter in Confessions that talked about, you know, this playbook of if engineers aren't designing these streets, and you're trying to get the general public and the elected officials. Engaged and involved and understand their role in helping produce, you know, and maintain safe streets. What, what is that sort of playbook?
1: Yeah, well, we talk about street design teams. You know, we should not give the engineer the authority to design the street by themselves and then present it. Uh, to the public, present it to uh, elected officials, and then let elected officials choose between bad, uh, worse, and, and and horrible in their designs. And that's generally what happens. Um, what we need to do is start with a non-technical person who is going to begin the way projects like this should begin, which is common values, common goals. What are we trying to reach? Um, I think, you know, we need to, I, I brought up uh, Massachusetts and, and the West coast as two different mindsets of, of public engagement. And I said, Minnesota is somewhere in the middle. I I think they're all flawed in a fundamental way. I think they all try to do public engagement as theater and public engagement as public relations. So in other words, uh, let's, let's have a big act of, of listening to people. And so no one can say we didn't listen to you because I sat here for an hour and let you talk. Um, that's public engagement as theater. Public engagement as process is this idea that we're going to do all the work and make all the decisions, but then we have to go out and present it to you and uh, sit and listen to you while you say what you don't like about it. And then, you know, we're the adults in the room who are elected. We got we to gotta move ahead with this. Th- those are dysfunctional ways of doing public engagement. If we're designing a street, we actually need to go out and have a street design team that includes people who live on that street people who interact with that street. I love the idea of empaneling juries. In other words, taking a random selection of people, not just the the old guy who shows up for everything to complain, but actually calling on our neighbors, calling on residents to step up and be part of a design process. I think you get a more accurate sense of the, the values in place. And the street design team needs to include engineers, but it also needs to include other technical professionals, planners, economic development people, housing people, parks people, maintenance people, And it needs to start with a a clear set of values and guidelines. Uh, I've wrote a whole series of articles about how design speed is a value statement. If you said our design speed here is 50 miles an hour because the enforced speed will be 30 miles an hour and we wanna make sure that drivers have a lot of margin for error and a lot of buffer, that is a value statement. It's 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 an extreme value statement that will be very different from someone who said, our value statement here is that the design speed should be 15 miles an hour or 20 miles an hour, because that's what would be safe. So there's a whole process here that involves the public, not in a superficial way and not in an after the fact process way, but but deeply in a conversation about values. Because really, the public has no... The general public has no expertise on the type of bituminous asphalt concrete that should be laid down. They right. have no knowledge about the size of the concrete pipe that should be attached to the catch basin, right? Like those are deeply technical things that we need engineers to do calculations on and figure out. But if you said to the general public, what, what should the design speed be here? And how does that relate to what we're trying to accomplish on this street? That, that's a deeply value driven statement. That should actually come from the public and a public engagement process. Yeah, because the the public has a different set of values. I mean,
0: they do value safety and, you know, the comfort, you know, of that street. You know, so again, you, you, you talk about this in the book that, you know, there's a misalignment of those values. How are you doing on time? Yeah. I'm doing all right. You're doing all right? Okay, good. Let's yeah, get, it, get a couple we're, more. questions. We're a little
1: after one? Yeah, yeah. We're a, little a little bit one, after
0: one. We've got a a question here from I'm, uh JC. That yeah, go ahead.
1: I have fun. I love talking to you, John. So we're we're doing we're doing good. We're great.
0: doing good. We're doing good. Okay, so JC says related question. How do we push municipal governments to or yeah, municipal governments to better integrate urban planning, transportation planning? And street maintenance, functionally, Uh, there's such siloing that's out there. Any good examples that you can point to?
1: Well, good good examples are are difficult to come by, right? So let's step back and look at the broader question. And again, I, I think it's important to understand what local governments do. Local governments are right now the implementation arm of state and federal policy. And so what we see is that local governments have, in the Great Depression, World War II, and, and beyond uh, time periods, uh, realigned themselves or oriented themselves uh, vertically. They've structured themselves into high lows, uh, high lows. I always say that. Hierarchies and silos. High lows. I keep wanting to combine everything. And, and that is a model of the U.S. military, right? And the U.S. military, if you know anything about military structure, it's very good at Uh, sending orders down and having those orders executed out. Local governments have positioned themselves as the algae in a food chain of governments, ready to accept money from the state and federal government, ready to borrow money from the bond market, and ready to accept outside uh, developers' capital to come in and then execute on that. And the silo hierarchy structure is designed to accomplish that. People. Say that local government is inefficient they don't understand local government it's ridiculously efficient it is really really efficient at this process what local government needs to do is reorient itself and a lot of the complaints that we have about hierarchies and silos being out of touch and not work it would be changed if if we rearrange government to orient horizontally When you look at these vertically aligned systems, they're very efficient, they can deliver things. What they can't do is they can't adapt and evolve. They can't customize this street and that street in different ways. It's it's, it's very, very difficult to do. We have to actually align horizontally. And that is a a different version of government. I have seen places like Shreveport, Louisiana. I've seen places like Memphis, Tennessee, adopt this in limited realms to great success. The idea that instead of saying what is the state program that we can tap into? And then how do we mobilize that program to do a project here that we want to do instead of asking that question, which is the project development process today, we say, where are people in the community struggling to do things? And what is the next smallest step we can take right now to address that struggle? Yeah. Um, it, that, that, to even be in a position to ask that question, as a local government requires a level of humility, sensitivity to struggles, and, and, and just kind of room to breathe that local governments can't get in this vertical orientation. Yeah. Yeah. If you go to most city halls today and ask them what's going on, they will what's what are the what are the five big things you're working on? I guarantee you, four of the five of them, maybe all five of them, will be some type of implementation of a state or federal program, some working with a developer with outside capital or something that's going to result in a bond issuance. And what that does is it makes local government really sensitive to those capital flows, to those opportunities. You talk to people and they'll be like, yeah, there's this new grant program. Yeah, there's this developer coming in. Yeah. And it makes them not sensitive to the struggle that someone has to cross the bridge, or the struggle that someone has to get to work because they've got to walk two miles on sidewalks that haven't been shoveled of snow in the winter, or the sensitivity of someone who is just trying to get to the park and can't cross the strode uh, without feeling uh, like they're being violated. The, the business who's struggling to get uh, clientele because you ripped out all the sidewalks or built a huge parking, you know, moat between them and and their 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 constituents. If we were became more sensitive to that latter group of things, what we would find is that there's an infinite number of really small, really productive projects that we could do yeah. that would be very high returning. I mean, financially would put cities in a much greater position, uh, but would also improve people's quality of life. It's the little, hard. To it's do. the
0: little unsexy things too. I mean, you know, part of JC's question was, you know, the maintenance. I mean maintenance is boring but it is essential uh one of the other uh, comments that he had here i'll put it up on screen here is my real parking issue is a woeful lack of secure hopefully covered bike parking i mean these are little things these are not the big massive ribbon cutting inducing political hand you know shaking types of of events i mean these are like can you block and tackle can you do the
1: basics well I don't want to. I don't want to make this too meta, but let me let me make an observation that I I feel is true. If I look back at my grandfather, he grew up in the Great Depression. He was a Marine in World War II. If you talk to him, his entire life was an obsession with the little things. Right? Mm-hmm. He would give all the grandkids pop, and he would get mad because. Uh, we wouldn't finish the whole thing. You'd leave this much at the bottom, right, right. drove, him, drove him nuts. Drove and, him I can, absolutely and, I, and I can totally tell that you're from the Midwest cause you called it pop. So <laughs> yeah, I call it pop. Um, when, when you would eat over at my grandparents' house, if you did not clean your plate, it was an offense beyond offenses, right? Like that was, that was completely unacceptable unacceptable in every way. I, I look at my kids and I'm like, I don't want you to clean your plate because if you're not hungry, I don't want you to eat. I want you to be healthy. Don't stuff yourself, you know, like eat, eat healthily. For my grandfather, wasting stuff, wasting food, wasting pop, wasting time, wasting, uh, you know, fertile ground that you could plant something. Th- these were things that just really bothered him because he had lived in times of severe want. I, I tell the story sometimes about how he he lived on a farm during the Great Depression. He, he, his, his mother passed away when he was very little. His father was an alcoholic, couldn't care for him. He wound up, basically the neighbors allowed him to live in the barn. This is in Minnesota in the Great Depression. This was not great uh, living accommodations, but as a young boy, he slept in the barn and he worked the farm and then they would feed him. So this is a guy who knew hardship, right? I'm not saying we're like weak today, like, oh, greatest generation and now all this. What I am saying is that an abundance of resources makes us very insensitive to blocking and tackling. It makes us very insensitive to the actual value and benefit of doing small things competently. A bike shelter that is secure is not a big deal. Especially if you understand what you're doing from an urban design standpoint, you usually could spend less money in a lot of instances building things that have good design that would produce beneficial outcomes. Um, But we don't do that, and we don't do that because we have tended to solve all of our problems by throwing an abundance of resources at them. That abundance of resources has made it so we don't think very hard about stuff. There's a quote that is attributed to Churchill and it actually wasn't Churchill. It was a a physicist named Ernest Rutherford who was working on the atomic bomb during World War II. And it was a very male space. So this quote will be a little sexist for today's uh, discussion. But he went into his group and things weren't going well and they were getting their funding like pulled or rescinded or whatever. And he goes in and he says, men, we've run out of money. It's time to start thinking. And I, 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 that is a deep, profound insight, right? Because <laughs> if, you, if you lack resources, you actually have to be really smart. If you want to see the cities in this country that I think are doing the greatest work that we can all learn from, Detroit, Memphis, Buffalo, Shreveport, it's, it's a list of struggling places. But if you go there, you are going to see the greatest level of innovation, the greatest level of entrepreneurship, you're going to see them doing amazing things on shoestring budgets. And yes, you're going to see a lot of struggle, but recognize that that struggle is a preview of coming attractions. It's, it's not something anomalous to them. They've reached the destination that your community is going to, and they've started to adapt. That's what we need to learn from these places.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, so a couple other things uh, popping up here on the uh, uh, the board here, and they're coming in fast and furious now. <laughs> so, uh, and That's good. yes, th- George, thank you for for mentioning uh, the, you know the Mueller neighborhood. Yes, there is a neighborhood that is moving forward right here in Austin, Texas. And yeah, che- uh, Kelsey, uh, pop on over to the Active Towns channel. Take a look at that. Uh, that particular video, it's it's led by, the tour is led by Preston Tyree, who I think is on the- uh, Preston the is amazing. Yeah. yeah, Preston is amazing and he's here. Um, so one of the other questions that came up and, and and this kind of like starts to look forward and hopefully creates some hope for us. And it's from James Smith and he says, how do you think things will improve when the next generation enters into, you know, these planning fields and these engineering uh. fields, the next generation?
1: So, how do I think things will improve? I, I think you're act, you, you're, you're, you, the, the, the base question has an assumption of optimism, right, John? <laughs> um, well, definitely. Because I, 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 I think some of this is an open question, right? What do we know about this next group coming in? We, we know that they're poorer, we know that they're entering their adulthood many decades behind prior generations in terms of their savings. In terms of their earnings potential, they're entering into a, 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 an economic system that provides far less opportunity for uh, most people. Lots of opportunity for a handful of people, but but the vast majority, you know, the the, the old the old uh, kind of trope that well, you know, a blue collar worker to support a family of four. It's a trope, and it's used in a lot of destructive ways. But that doesn't make it untrue, right? You 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 could be a blue collar worker in the 50s and 60s and, and actually have a really high standard of living, put aside savings and have that result now and having a really high quality of life, those opportunities aren't there. And so there's a, there's a part of me that recognizes that the starting condition of this generation is different and that's gonna make their sensitivities different. It's gonna make the things that they are inherently sensitive to be different I look at people who are in government to now who are, you know, older than me. I'm 49, you know, people in their 50s and, and, and their 60s grew up like I did in car culture, where biking, walking, doing these other things was, was, was a side thing that people did largely for leisure, largely because it was a lifestyle choice. I think it's gonna be very different when people who it's not a lifestyle choice, but it's actually an economic decision, are part of the the, the conversation. I grew up and watched the baby boomers, which I think we would have said in their teens and and twenties were the most idealistic generation. That you know any of us, and I'm not a boomer, I'm a Gen Xer. But I, I I watched this transition of this generation that we celebrated for Woodstock and free love and and civil rights movements and all this uh, become the core of the the yuppie movement, right? The idea of buy as much crap as you can, get as much credit as you can, get in your job and work your way up the ladder. So I, I tend to discount these theories that people will maintain their, their idealism of youth throughout their entire life. I, I think we are human and I think we will evolve and continue to evolve as humans, good good and bad but i do think that that you know so so a lot of the people who are looking all starry eyed at millennials and and oh we've created this great generation who is very sensitive to all these things i i'm a little less i'm a little i'm a gen x cynical on that but i do think that their starting conditions and their prospects and outlooks make their conversation a very interesting one and i tend to when i go around places and talk to places i tend to find the millennials and the people younger than that to be the most intuitively receptive to the Strong Towns set of ideas, so I'm 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 optimistic and excited, but I don't think that means that it will be easy or painless. It's not going to be easy or painless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure. yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I want I wanted to to get to just a a couple more uh, quick comments here. Uh, somebody, you know, they're. The, the chat is going in and folks are uh, throwing other places that are, are hopeful in Emeryville, California uh, just came up. And of course, mayor John Botters is there, which is uh, fantastic that he's getting the, the recognition that he is and really trying to do what they can at the the, at the block level, at the small level, trying to make the streets yeah. safer and more inviting for people. Uh, it's it's really, you know, quite encouraging to see, uh, you know, some a, a place that's, you know, basically sandwiched in a lot of industrial areas in the Bay Area, making some positive steps. Chuck, yeah. what,
1: uh, what final thoughts do you want to leave the audience with here today? Oh, man. I mean, I, I think about the work that you do and 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 to to me, I've it, you you and I start in different places, right? Like you start with this active life vision, and I've started with this financial conundrum that I was trying to solve. And I've I I feel like my early days of of not only engineering and planning, but maybe even the early days of Strong Towns was one that would have discounted. Not you as an individual, but but your work as being in a sense less important or uh, marginal to the the other conversations that were going on. You know, active living is a great idea; it's a great concept. Boy, it would be nice if everybody could do that, but for many people, it's a lifestyle choice. And you know, I, I think we've got more urgent things to tend to. As time has gone on, I, I've come to recognize how wrong that. That reaction was, and how central and urgent the active living conversation is. Not only important because of public health issues and and, and because of uh, quality of life issues, but deeply important to solving the problem that that I was inspired by. You know this this financial uh, insolvency issue that we see in local governments across the country. We will not solve that problem. Without a culture that embraces biking and walking, uh, we will not solve that problem. Without streets that are safe for people who bike and walk, we will not solve any of these problems. Without active living being not a optional thing or a marginal thing or something on the side, but it being central to everything that we discuss and everything that we do, essentially incorporated into those conversations, and so. As a final thought, I I just want to acknowledge that, say that you know what you're doing and what we're doing is to me perfectly aligned. I love every opportunity I can to come here and, and chat with you, and chat with you know the people that that you have found uh, to interact with. Every time I see them, Preston is a great example. Preston is a is a Strong Towns member, as are you, John. I deeply appreciate it. You know every every time we have these interactions. I think we get closer and closer and closer to the place we need to be, which if if I could just paint an avatar of what that is, it is the kid out on a bike. It is the mom pushing her kids in a stroller with rollerblades on. It's the elderly person on the, the adult trike going to the grocery store. It is the couple walking down the street having an engaging conversation. It is a culture of people who bike and walk. And and you are, I think, one of the leading bridges, one of the leading proponents of connecting these things together. And I'm just, I'm I'm grateful for all that you do. So thank you, John. And thank you. And uh, you and I have said this before. Uh,
0: inherently, a strong town is an active town because a strong town is a town where, and a city and a community, is a place where you can live a healthy, active lifestyle. You can walk and bike to meaningful destinations. You can take transit. You can do these types of things. So these, you, you, you don't have the, um, the wedge or this, or, or this, you know, uh, you know, insidious, yeah, you know, the, 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 the horizontal expansion, you know, the experiment of, of, uh, you know, of, you know, what we would call suburban sprawl, whatever we don't yeah, necessarily yeah. use that word but but yeah, exactly. so that's one of the first things that we we said way back in 2013 on the first podcast was, yeah, inherently, a strong town is well, an active town.
1: I, I, I'll take it a step further. I don't think you can be a strong town without a, 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 an active town. I don't think you can be a strong town without a culture of biking and walking. Yeah yeah, good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, man. Thank
0: you so much, man. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you once again on the podcast. Hey, to the audience, thank you so much. I, it's so cool to see all of the chats you know, flying through here. I hope you had a good time. I'm going to try to do more of these live streaming events. And in fact, I'll announce this, uh, the War on Cars will be here for our final episode for season three. So Doug Gordon will be here and uh, we'll, we'll have that out. So yeah. Uh, once again, good stuff. And, uh, thank you once again for, uh, for joining me on the active towns podcast.